Welcome to episode 11 of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll talk about the expulsion of George Santos from Congress and the special election that will trigger, the family members of current and former politicians looking to join them in D.C., and the current state of play in the GOP presidential primary as we close out the year. Here we go. Hello, I'm Jacob Rubashkin, and I'll be spending the holidays in Maryland's 8th Congressional District, which is represented by Congressman Jamie Raskin. Hi, I'm Erin Covey, and I will be spending the holidays where I spent Thanksgiving, which was in Texas's 35th, or excuse me, 31st Congressional District, um, which is represented by Congressman John Carter, and then Texas's 20th District, which is represented by Joaquin Castro. And I'm Nathan Gonzalez, and I'll be spending Christmas in lovely Northeast Indiana in Indiana's third district, uh, currently represented by Republican Jim Banks, uh, who will be a United States senator uh, after these after these elections. <laughs> and Nathan, do you have a favorite Christmas movie that you'll be indulging in over the holidays? <laughs> well, we tend to watch Home Alone a lot. That is a, a good movie, and the kids love it, and it's it's pretty timeless. Elf will get a lot of play. Uh, one of the ones that I find myself watching on TNT or something all the time seems to be Four Christmases. I don't know if either of you've seen that with Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon. It's a an underrated, maybe emerging Christmas classic. But uh, have you have you all seen that? I can't say that I have. I remember seeing it. Maybe it was on Netflix last night because I was I was looking for a holiday movie to watch and did not like any of the options on any of the streaming services. And I but I had not seen that before. I was like, I, I don't know what this is. Well, do you have a do you do each of you have a favorite? I mean, Harry Potter, Narnia, these are all Christmas movies. Um, The Holiday, Miracle on 34th. There's a lot. Classic. Yeah. I so I have I have a couple kind of more orthodox ones, not not capital O orthodox. Um But uh, the uh, I'm a Home Alone two guy. Uh, I I think Lost in New York is is pretty great. I I am a Die Hard is a Christmas movie believer, uh, so I'll throw that in there. But um, when I was growing up, we actually had a, a tradition with with a couple of families that we would get together with on Christmas Eve um, of watching Star Wars, uh, usually Episode five, sometimes Episode six. So for me, uh, I've always associated the last two movies of the original trilogy. Uh, with that time of year. Interesting. My boys would be, they'd be into that. <laughs> struggling you know, for a, more of a connection, but. Episode five, it's takes place on a wintry planet. Everyone is in, you know, cold weather gear. It, it works. It works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we discuss our three big stories, though, let's, uh, let's get to a few headlines. So in Alaska, Lieutenant Governor Nancy Dahlstrom launched her bid to take on Democrat Mary Peltola. Dahlstrom is a Republican. She's been heavily recruited by national Republicans here in Washington, D.C., but she may actually complicate efforts to win back this seat. Uh, That's because there's another Republican already in the race. Nick Begich, who ran for this seat in 2022, is the grandson of former 
uh, Congressman Nick Begich, uh, who held this seat a half century ago. And because of Alaska's top four rank choice voting system, the only one of its kind in the nation, the presence of two Republicans running against one Democrat, uh, Mary Peltola, actually makes it more easy uh, for, for Peltola to ultimately win a tough re-election. I, you know what? I missed Nick, Nick Bagich when I was going through my Nepo baby candidate list. So this is a good <laughs> reminder. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he's for definitely our future up there. segments. Yeah. <laughs> um, in other unrelated news, um, Sandy Penzler, who ran for Senate in 2018 in Michigan um, and is a wealthy private investment firm owner, is running for Senate again in Michigan this cycle. Um, and he is the fourth candidate or the fourth prominent candidate to get in the Republican primary for this open seat, um, which is getting increasingly crowded and is probably going to be one of the messiest Republican primaries of the cycle. The other candidates are former Congressman uh, Mike Rogers and Pete Meyer, and then former Detroit Police Chief James Craig. Yikes. Uh, and in, in North Carolina, Republican Patrick McHenry went from uh, interim Speaker of the House to not running for re-election at all in the matter of about six weeks. Uh, his newly drawn 10th district in North Carolina is solidly Republican, so the, the big fight will be in the Republican primary. Uh, despite the headlines about the mass exodus from the House, uh, according to my count, uh, we're at about 33 members who have announced they would not, they would not seek re-election. The average per cycle is 34. But we still have about five months worth of filing deadlines in states, so it's likely we're going to creep above average by the time we're, we're, it's all said and done. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. Uh, the GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. Uh, as a graduate of the GSPM program, uh, it was exactly what I was looking for. Um, I knew that I wanted to get an advanced degree, but I also knew for sure that I did not want to go to law school. And the master's degree that GSPM provided was more practical than uh, some other advanced degree in, in political science. Uh, so I know it was right, right decision for me, might be the right decision for you. So just click on the link and check out what the GSPM program has to offer. First up, on its third try, the House of Representatives finally expelled embattled New York Congressman George Santos. Two thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. The serial fabulist was expelled from Congress on a 311 to 114 vote. That's about 27 votes more than the two-thirds threshold necessary to expel a member of Congress, so not a particularly close outcome when all was said and done. Uh, now there will be a special election to fill the vacancy left by Santos, and this will be the first truly competitive uh, special election of the 2024 cycle. And it's right before Valentine's Day, right? 
That's exactly right. It will make a very nice gift for either House Speaker Mike Johnson or Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries on February 13th, one day before Valentine's Day, when uh, New Yorkers will go to the polls to to fill this vacancy. Uh, And we are taping this podcast on Wednesday morning, December 6th. Uh, We do not know what the candidates are going to be yet, but we anticipate that within the next couple of days, we will have a good sense of who the Democratic and Republican nominees are for this race. But even though it's not official, we you have a pretty good idea who who the nominees are going to be, right? Yeah. So certainly on the Democratic side, it's it's pretty clear that it's going to be former Congressman Tom Suozzi, who held this seat uh, from uh, 2017 uh, up until this past year, 2023, when he left to run for governor. There had been a moment where it looked like the current governor, Kathy Hochul, might actually intervene and prevent him from winning uh, the the nod here. And I should say, the way that the nominations work in New York in special election is, is that there's not a party primary. The nominees are actually handpicked by the county party leadership in any of these districts. In this case, in New York's third's case, the district is predominantly Nassau County on Long Island with a little bit of Queens, but ultimately the decision rested in the hands of of one man, Jay Jacobs, who is the chairman of the Nassau County Democratic Party, as well as the chairman of the New York State Democratic Party. Now, Jacobs is close with Governor Kathy Hochul. He's also close with Tom Suozzi. Hochul clearly had a lot of influence in this process because she actually dragged Suozzi up to Albany on Monday to interrogate him. Uh, about his uh, plans to run for Congress and extract a number of political commitments from him, get him to apologize for the campaign that he ran against her last year in the Democratic primary. And only after that did she uh, give him her stamp of approval uh, to be the nominee uh, for the party. The other Democrat who was in the mix, Anna Kaplan, a former state senator who actually had run against Swazi in the Democratic primary in 2016 as well, um, she was the other candidate that was being considered, but it does not look like she'll get the nod uh, this time around. Wait, did Hochul actually extract an apology from Swazi? Yes, or according to the New York, <laughs> according to the New York Times, uh, in in their meeting at, at the governor's mansion on Monday, uh, Swazi did apologize for the way that he ran uh, his 2022 race. It was a total flop, his campaign. He he won about 13% of the vote, even worse than he did the last time he ran for governor in 2006 against Elliot Spitzer when he won 18%. But he apologized basically for insinuating that Hochul was corrupt, um, uh, among some other political things that he said in the course of that race. Um, and then on the Republican side, it's a little less clear, but it will likely be one of two uh, potential options. There is a retired NYP detective named Mike Sapraconi, who is already in the race, was running against Santos. Uh, and then there is a Nassau County legislator named Mazi Pillup, uh, who has not been running, but uh, was interviewed for this role and is the other potential choice here for Nassau County Republican Party Chairman Joe Cairo. No matter who the nominees are, we have this race rated as a toss-up. It's going to be a a sprint to February 13th, likely millions of dollars being spent. Um, How important is this race for uh, either the the immediate uh, Congress and for the fight for the majority uh, later in 2024? 
Well, it's incredibly important for both because Republicans have such a narrow majority right now, 222 to 213. Uh, they are going to lose a member when Bill Johnson leaves uh, to take over Youngstown State University. Democrats, of course, are going to lose a member when Brian Higgins leaves. But the reality is very narrow margins. And we're still looking at a, a year where they have to pass a number of bills. And Mike Johnson clearly has not been able to figure out a way to consolidate his caucus to the fullest extent yet. So if Republicans go down a seat, if we're looking at a 221 to 214, right, all of a sudden that narrows the margin that Republicans can afford uh, on any given vote. So it's important for the immediate implications, but it's also important, of course, for the fight for the majority, especially because Democrats have staked their path to the majority on New York. New York was a disaster for the party in 2022. It was an embarrassment for Hakeem Jeffries, who's now the Democratic leader. They lost five or six seats that they should have won, given how well they performed elsewhere in the country. Uh, so they know that in order to win back the majority next year, they have to reclaim a lot of territory in New York. If they can't win the seat that George Santos was just booted out of, a Biden plus eight seat on Long Island with a former congressman running potentially uh, against an untested Republican opponent. If they can't win that race, it says a lot about their chances of being able to win all of those races in New York that they want to, to rack up in order to get back to 2015, uh, in order to get back to 2018, excuse me, in, in 2024. So do we think this is going to be more or less expensive than Georgia 6 was in 2017, given the, given the timeline? And obviously, things are more expensive now than they were in 2017 in general. So what was what the Georgia Georgia 6 was like 40 million all in ultimately or something like that? I believe it was 40 million. Um, and it's still I, it still holds the record for the most expensive House special election. I, I think there's a chance this exceeds that, but I think working against it is just the um, the really condensed timeline, right? The thing about Georgia 6 was that it really was two elections because there was that all-party primary that Georgia does for its special elections where if you win right. a majority, you win the seat. And so there was a real thought that maybe Ossoff could win an outright majority, and then he didn't, and it went to a runoff. So I believe the timeline there was significantly longer. Uh, we're looking at just a, a really a couple of months. A February 13th uh, election is, is two months and change. And so there's not as much time to spend money on TV. Obviously, New York TV is incredibly expensive. This district is entirely within the New York media market. But I do wonder whether that will ultimately keep costs lower than that massive special election in Atlanta we saw a couple of years ago, just because there's less time to, to run those ads. Yeah, so it was more than 50 million, actually. Um, so underestimated a bit. Yeah, I, I don't know if they'll hit 50. I talked to a few sources uh, over the weekend who were, their their, their top end was, was closer to 40. Um, and, okay. and between kind of 20 to 40, I think, depending on what the polling data looks like and how much each party ultimately wants to invest, how much they can invest, what resources are available. I, I love that range. It could be 20 million or double that. <laughs> That's quite a... <laughs> yeah. What's, what's quite 20 million a among friends? Come on. Jacob, do you have a sense of who the strongest Republican nominee would be between those two? And I know there's maybe one or two others who are maybe still in the mix. 
Yeah, gosh, it's hard to say. I think that on paper, Mozzie Pillup has an incredible story and one that we don't really hear very much coming out of anyone, certainly, but uh, Republican politics. She is a, uh, her story, she is a Jewish Ethiopian refugee who uh, went from Ethiopia to Israel, joined the Israeli Defense Force, was a paratrooper in the Israeli army, has since come to Long Island, where she's a state legislator. There's only ever been one black woman uh, to ever serve in Congress as a Republican. So if she were to get the nod and to win, she would be the second. It would be pretty historic. Uh, She would be the first Jewish black woman to serve uh, in Congress, I believe. Um, And, uh, you know, for a Republican Party that typically on Long Island nominates a certain kind of candidate, she looks pretty different than uh, than the the status quo there. Um, you know, I, I think that she is a local county legislator and uh, it, it's always a big step up to, to try and run for uh, a congressional seat, but certainly hear lots of good things about her. Mike Sapriconi, Uh, is kind of the more typical Republican that you might see come out of Long Island. And the reality is, over the last couple of years, they've actually been quite successful with that model. You know, he actually shares a lot of similarities with the congressman in the 4th District, which is due south of the 3rd, Anthony D'Esposito, also an Italian-American, retired NYPD detective, originally from Hempstead, uh, which is the town in the 4th District. And uh, D'Esposito won a, a district that was twice as Democratic um, uh, by margin as the third district last year. And so I think for Republicans, when you're trying to kind of figure out who you think your best candidate is going to be, um, both of these uh, options, Pillip and Sapriconi, bring uh, very different stories to the table, but both uh, I, I think could wage very credible general election campaigns in this district. While Democrat Tom Swazi is attempting to win back his old seat, uh, another candidate is trying to win a seat that was once held by his father, and he's not the only one trying to keep it all in the family. Uh, and the other surprise in Texas was in the 26th Congressional District where uh, Dick Armey uh, is retiring after this term, and his son was running to replace him. Uh, his son in a runoff with uh, a Dr. Michael Burgess. Um, not, he was a, Burgess is a political newcomer, uh, di- doesn't have a lot of experience in politics. Scott Armey had a lot of uh, money, support. He had the name, of course, uh, running in his father's district. That was a clip from a 2002 Washington Journal segment on C-SPAN talking about the race to succeed Dick Armey, who was the former majority leader of the House who retired in 2002. And at the time, his son, Scott Armey, was expected to succeed him. Armey was a Denton County judge, um, was in his early 30s at the time, and was seen as the natural successor to his father. But in an upset, Michael Burgess, who was a gynecologist and a total political outsider, managed to defeat Scott Army in the primary runoff um, in a race that kind of turned into a race about nepotism. Um, And now 20 years later, Burgess is retiring um, and Scott Army, who is still younger than um, Burgess currently is, is running for a second time for his dad's old seat. So some of y'all might remember at the beginning of this year, Jacob wrote a pretty comprehensive piece um, breaking down all of the congressional Nepo babies, um, which you can still read online at InsideElections.com. 
And in 2024, it looks like a few more candidates with helpful familial connections um, could be elected to Congress. So this is not comprehensive, um, but here's a couple of folks that I've been watching. One of them is Scott Army, who, like I said earlier, is running again for his father's seat, which is in North Texas, in Texas's 26th district. And then Dinesh D'Souza's son-in-law, Brandon Gill, is also running for that same seat, uh, obviously does not have the D'Souza last name, um, but those connections are definitely going to be an asset. And then over in Washington, um, or excuse me, in Oregon, in Oregon's third district, Shashila Jayapal, who is the sister of Pramila Jayapal, is running to succeed Earl Blumenauer in that open race. And then over in Virginia 7, you have uh, Brianna Sewell, who is running to um, succeed Abigail Spamberger, who's running for governor in Virginia. She is a cousin of Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who represents a seat in Alabama. So, you know, maybe less of an asset there. Um, but then down in Alabama, you also have Shamari Figures, who is the son of two prominent um, state senators in the state, um, State Senator Michael Figures, the late State Senator Michael Figures, and State Senator Vivian Figures. Um, so those are just a couple. We also mentioned Nick Begich earlier running again for Congress in Alaska. And then probably the biggest though not really a Nepo baby, but the biggest um, potential nepotism storyline in 2024 is going to be Tammy Murphy, who is the wife of Governor Phil Murphy in New Jersey and is running in the primary against Menendez. So is there any uh, advantage uh, that being a family member of a, a current or former member of Congress or, or politician gives any of these candidates in their races? So... Um, it's definitely an advantage. All of the folks that I mentioned earlier all have competitive primaries. Um, so it's not like the name was enough to clear the field for them, um, but it probably will be enough to put them into the top tier of candidates um, in some of these races. Um, so like for Army, it's kind of unclear how much weight his last name has just because his father represented that part of Texas 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now. Um, and it's since then, the region has exploded. There has been a lot of dramatic growth in that area. And it's not clear how many people like actually remember who Dick Army is or would have um, voted for him back in 2000, and, back in 2000, which was the last time he would have been on the ballot there. Um, and then with Brandon Gill, um, obviously, like I said, doesn't have the last name, um, but he does have connections kind of in the MAGA world because of his wife, um, D'Souza's daughter. Um, and he also already got Trump's endorsement. So obviously some of those connections are paying off early on in that race. Um, and then in the Oregon race, this is something that I was asking Nathan about earlier. So obviously Jayapal represents Seattle um, and her sister is running for a Portland-based seat. Um, now I think Jayapal has a decent amount of national name ID versus your average member of Congress just because she does lead the Congressional Progressive Caucus and is fairly well known on the national stage um, as far as a member of Congress goes. But I'm not sure um, how much of an asset that will be for her sister. And then um, with some of these other folks, you know, um, with figures, I know that his name um, is really well known in the Mobile part of the new Alabama district. There has been a figures in the state Senate since 1978. Um, and so that is probably going to be a huge asset for him. Um, but Tammy Murphy probably is going to benefit the most in that contest. And I'll, I'll let you, 
Jacob talk about that a little more since he's been covering that one. Yeah, it's been quite incredible to see the Democratic Party establishment in New Jersey line up behind Tammy Murphy in that primary, especially because not only is there, of course, a sitting Democratic senator who still says that, uh, well, he doesn't hasn't said officially that he's, he's running for re-election, but he hasn't said he's not running either in Bob Menendez, who's facing a, a number of federal indictments, but also there's a sitting Democratic congressman, Andy Kim from the third district, who is also running uh, in, in that Democratic primary. And, and yet, even then, we have seen pretty much the entire congressional delegation short of uh, Bob Menendez's son, Robert Menendez, and Bonnie Watson Coleman. Otherwise, everyone has has pretty much lined up behind Tammy Murphy in that race. She has already won support from a numerous uh, county party organizations, which in New Jersey actually means something because it gives you preferential ballot placement on uh, all of the ballots in in that county. Studies have shown that there is a appreciable impact to having the county party line in New Jersey. Um, and, and so we have seen a remarkable consolidation among a lot of the establishment around Tammy Murphy as she uh, has entered this race. Uh, Andy Kim, though, doesn't seem like he's backing down. He's raising a lot of money. He has won support from a number of national groups, um, Vote Vets, I I believe, and Citizens United, though I'm not sure uh, about that. But he is also a strong contender here. The early polling in the race shows that he uh, starts out with the lead over both Menendez and Murphy. So we'll see if uh, her connections to to the governor and and to the state's politics are enough to uh, help her pull off an upset. Yeah, it's key. I think these candidates, um, maybe, uh, maybe they have higher name ID, but some of the can't because of, because of having a family name, but the ones that we're talking about, right, are in different districts, sometimes different states, but having that, those connections, uh, maybe give them an advantage with donors, right. Or, or give them a second look or to a, a smaller class of people who do still recognize the name or that lineage. And so they, uh, they have an advantage because in crowded primaries, some of the big groups stay on the sidelines. And so raising money and raising your name ID is difficult. But if you have an extra opportunity to, uh, in, to get to know donors, then that could give you an advantage in a crowded race. Yeah. Though we should say, of course, it's not, uh, it's not always an advantage and it's certainly not always a silver bullet. I mean, I remember, uh, Earlier in the cycle, when Laura Pastor in in Arizona um, was uh, considered one of the top candidates for um, the the seat being vacated by Ruben Gallego, and of course her father Ed Pastor held that seat for a while. Uh, we mentioned Nick Begich, who lost two elections uh, in Alaska last year, a special and a uh, and a general election, and and of course Scott Army lost that 2002 race, and and I I read a story the other day that that noted that uh, Burgess actually was able to turn Army's connection to his father into a liability for the younger right. candidate. He actually ran mailers that all they said was Michael Burgess, I'm not Dick Army's son. <laughs> and <laughs> and that was an effective enough uh, message for him to to. Uh, shock a lot of the political establishment there and and beat Scott Army in the primary back in 02. So Aaron, do what what races that we just talked about actually matter for the balance of power, the balance of power in the house? 
So probably only one of those races, um, which is Virginia's seventh district, and also probably the race where um, the kind of nepotism connection may have the least impact, um, just because on the Democratic side of that race, that is already a pretty crowded primary. And there's still a couple of bigger names who could run here who have not announced campaigns. And so, yeah, it's kind of unclear at this point, I guess, what Brianna Sewell's chances look like because the field is still in flux. Um, But I mean, you know, the fact that her cousin is in Congress could help her maybe with congressional endorsements and with donors. Um, And so, like you said, Nathan, that connection there is probably going to matter more than the actual last name, just because, you know, Alabama is not close to Virginia and Terry Sewell is not a particularly high profile member in the House either. And, I, and I, you know, we should say that, you know, Brianna Sewell is an elected official in her own right. She's yes, a member yeah. of the State House of Delegates. She has her own kind of political identity, um, separate and apart wholly from from her uh, her cousin. Though I will say the Sewells are also a, a, a politically active ca- uh, family going back at least one generation. Terry Sewell's mother uh, was the first black woman on the Selma City Council uh, back right. in the 1990s. So uh, clearly politics um, a big part of the family uh, for for the Sewells. And finally, let's check in on the presidential race where we're just 40 days away from the Iowa caucuses. Crazy, crazy to think. Uh, and by the time you're listening to this, it'll probably be 39 days. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Uh, last episode, Aaron and I, I think both incorrectly guessed that uh, Asa Hutchinson, would be the next Republican to drop out of the presidential race. In fact, uh, it was Doug Burgum, not Asa Hutchinson, who is still somehow uh, running for president. Um, Nathan, I think you uh, you thought that Burgum would be the next one to drop out when we talked about this last. So I will uh, defer to you on on uh, the rest of this conversation on the presidential race because you've clearly got a, a better finger on the pulse here. I don't know. I'm still surprised that Asa Hutchinson is still in the race. I, I almost forgot that. Uh, but aside from Burgum's departure and tonight's uh, Republican debate, the biggest news in the presidential race is probably Governor Ron DeSantis finishing the full Grassley uh, by visiting all 99 of Iowa's counties. And uh, he seems to think that that's going to boost him to the top. So we went everywhere, we showed up, we took questions, and we've been able to build a really incredible organization. We've got over 30,000 people that already committed to caucus for us. We're adding more every day. Of course, we have the endorsement by the great governor here, Kim Reynolds. Uh, if you look at past Iowa caucus winners and compare to what you know people were saying in November with this poll or that poll, it almost never comes out uh, the same way. That was Ron DeSantis. Uh, this past Sunday on Meet the Press. And a couple things jumped out to me. Uh, rather than finishing the full Grassley being this big accomplishment, I think it actually demonstrates his weakness in the race because this shows that after traveling to every corner in every county of the state over the last six months, DeSantis is either in the same position or worse than he was when he entered the race. Back in early June, he was polling at about 20% in Iowa. When you look at the 538 average now, uh, he's at about 18%, and he hasn't even cracked 20%. uh, He's only cracked 20% in one of the last 11 polls in Iowa uh, going back to August. So Trump remains the clear front runner. 
I am not convinced that this is that suddenly because he finished all 99 that voters are going to suddenly start peeling away from Trump and moving to DeSantis. Uh, I think that's a, a real challenge for him. Uh, DeSantis also mentioned that in previous Iowa caucuses that at this point, the the polls were wrong, that the, the, what they were saying in November was uh, not predictive of the caucuses. And I went back to the most recent competitive Iowa caucus in 2016. And at this point in that election, it showed Ted Cruz a few points ahead of Trump in multiple polls. And Cruz ended up beating Trump in Iowa 28 to 24%. The polls were actually we're actually pretty good. And so that's not good news for DeSantis. And also this, the, these caucuses are going to take place two weeks earlier than what they were in 2016. They were on February 1st in 2016. It's on January 15th of next year, uh, this cycle. So, um, you could tell I'm a little pessimistic on DeSantis chances. <laughs> Am I being too pessimistic? You two should correct me. And, um, and, and how many tickets do we think there are going to be? Uh, out of Iowa? I don't think so. I think, I mean, like you said, Trump standing in Iowa um, has been pretty static. And I mean, as of right now, Haley is only a couple of points behind DeSantis um, in an average of all the recent Iowa polls. And so I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's clear at all that DeSantis even like gets second place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there there are at least two tickets out of Iowa. Well, okay, I think Trump's going to win the nomination. I think all of this is ultimately a little bit of theater uh, preceding that, that ultimate conclusion. Uh, but I think for the purposes of looking just at the Republican primary, there are two tickets out of Iowa, right? It'll be Trump and then... Uh, Asa Hutchinson. Asa Hutchinson, exactly. No, Chris Christie is going to shock the nation. No, look, I, I think that there are either two or three tickets. I should be specific. I think if DeSantis comes in second, if it's Trump, DeSantis, Haley, the three of them all move on to New Hampshire. And then, you know, Haley wants to make it to South Carolina. That's her home state. That's where she's polling the best. You know, if she can build up some momentum in the first two states, finish a strong second, maybe in New Hampshire, and try and catapult in New and South Carolina, that's kind of the theory of the Haley case. Um, if DeSantis finishes in third in Iowa, he's polling about fifth in in New Hampshire right now, um, which uh, seems hard to believe because there are only four candidates. But um, you know, he's really he's really fallen quite a bit in New Hampshire. Um, if, if he finishes third in Iowa, I'm not sure how he continues to make his case because New Hampshire, he's lost a ton of ground. South Carolina, he uh, is well behind Nikki Haley now, uh, especially since Tim Scott dropped out and kind of the hometown support that was with him has largely shifted over to Haley. Uh, the Nevada caucuses slash primaries are kind of a mess and don't really seem to be um, very... Uh, uh, indicative of 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 one way or another, half the candidates are doing one, half the candidates are doing the other, um, and then you're at Super Tuesday, and the DeSantis folks for months have been saying, "Don't believe the national polls. The national polls don't matter." Uh, but when it comes to Super Tuesday, and you've got a dozen or, or more states doing their primaries, that's basically a national primary. I mean, if you're behind 30, 40, 50 points in the national polls, like DeSantis is, and you're heading into Super Tuesday, uh, what hope do you have? So. I think if he finishes third in Iowa, I I don't know if if he uh, continues, especially that his kind of 
the the superstructure of his campaign, which is this never back down super PAC that's been funding his ad campaigns, funding his bus. He only started driving his own bus in the last couple of weeks. They've basically fallen apart. They've they've gone through uh, two chairmen and two CEOs in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's a rival super PAC now. I, I don't know if he's going to have the capability to to outlast uh, a disappointing Iowa finish. Yeah, and Chris Christie, uh, we were talking about tickets out of Iowa. Chris Christie won't be getting one of those, but he's like, Chris Christie is nowhere in Iowa. He's trying to make a big splash in New Hampshire. So I think he'll be, you know, he'll at least try to stay in the race until New Hampshire. And then uh, I, I don't expect that to go, that strategy to go, to go well for him. But yeah, I think DeSantis, I, I'll put, I'll put, still put another flag in the ground that I, there's still time for DeSantis not even to make it to Iowa. I mean, this is not this is not going well for him. Aaron, as you said, um, DeSantis and Haley look about even in the polls, but I view them in the same place, but moving in different directions. Right? That Chris, uh, that uh, DeSantis moving in the wrong direction and Haley moving in the right direction. But is Nikki Haley is the the Nikki Haley boomlet? Is it is it real? Does that does it end up mattering in the context of of this primary? I mean, I think it's real. I think the harder question is how much it matters. Um, it's real that she is now, I think, probably the more viable second place alternative to Trump in the eyes, um, at least, of a lot of the you know anti-Trump donors um, and party leaders who are kind of on the sidelines right now. Um, and so that that does matter, particularly, you know, depending on what happens, I guess, with these trials and if i don't know if if there's a chance that somehow something happens with trump personally and he is not going to be on the ballot in the general election you know whoever is in second place would obviously be positioned to um be the nominee instead um but you know that's that's all speculation at this point that's why it's hard to really say how much it matters because at this point you know there's still like a pretty slim chance that anyone other than trump won, wins the republican primary yeah, I think it matters within the small universe of who gets second place. But ultimately, I think Haley's problem is that she's not, even if this is her boomlet, she's not anywhere close, right? And and we know, we know that most of DeSantis's supporters, maybe not most, but a plurality of DeSantis's supporters, their second choice is Trump. So if DeSantis yeah. drops out, if she successfully pushes DeSantis out of the race, all the people who thought of DeSantis as Trump but better or Trump but more polished, less baggage, those people aren't going to go to Nikki Haley. Uh, they're just going to go back to Trump. And and so uh, by perhaps her greatest success of supplanting DeSantis as the number two option, she's also kind of setting up Trump for uh, a big boost when, if and when DeSantis drops out. And I think that's what has really gotten under the skin of the DeSantis folks. And I know this because they talk about it publicly, uh, about how <laughs> Haley doesn't have a mathematical path to the majority, that if DeSantis goes, then there's nobody that can stop Trump. Uh, and yet it's it's that kind of process argument is not one that voters are, are necessarily finding themselves swayed by, especially the kind of voters that are deciding between Trump alternatives, which is the kind of people that are now gravitating toward Haley away from DeSantis, not the people who want Trump 2.0. Yeah. 
DeSantis had a chance. I mean, as he had as good a chance as any of the non-Trump candidates. He came, you know, he he finished his real his huge re-election bid, you know, as the most talked about Republican other than Trump, and you know, he blew it. We'll see what we'll see what happens uh, in the end, though. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something new we've stumbled across. It could be political, sports, music, or something else entirely. You never know what you're going to get. Erin, what did you find this week? So I was reading the um, Time Person of the Year article this morning. Um, It's about Taylor Swift, if you're living under a rock. And um, the funniest part (laughs) that I found in it was that apparently her song Mastermind, which is kind of a deep cut on Midnight's, her latest album, was inspired by the movie The Phantom Thread, um, which obviously does not end well. I'm not going to spoil it, but it doesn't end well for the uh, male counterpart in that love story, which I just I thought was very funny. And I don't know if she was alluding to like something specific with that or just the general idea of being able to uh, manipulate your relationships in interesting ways. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I read recently that Sweet Nothings is apparently about Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. That that might be a, a, a just a theory. I don't know if that's confirmed or not. Um, it's a theory. She liked a, theory. a tweet. Okay, she liked a <laughs> that tweet. People okay. are reading into. I mean, yeah. that's that's more evidence that I feel like there is for a lot of the theories. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, what did I find? I found a couple of things. Uh, but the I really got a kick out of um, a recent New York Times magazine profile by Katie Weaver of uh, Stephanie Courtney, who I think everyone pretty much knows better as Flo from Progressive, the spokeswoman for the insurance company that has become kind of a ubiquitous face uh, for anyone who's turned on a TV or uh, opened YouTube over the last 12 or 13 years. Uh, it's an incredibly funny profile. It's a really interesting kind of portrait of somebody who is both insanely famous, but also completely unknown, um, as well as someone who, you know, had their life turned upside down, basically, by a single casting call uh, when they were a struggling comedian. Uh, so, um, uh, as well as someone who's, you know, defined by being the face of an insurance company now, which is not necessarily uh, what she expected or, or, or anyone else thinks of themselves uh, as, as they're calling. Uh, but it's in the New York Times. It's a really funny article. It's uh, uh, a good read if you haven't checked it out already. And I found that I still don't like Mariah Carey's Christmas music. Uh, this might be caused m- multiple people to turn off this podcast, but it's because my I believe my sister played it on a loop for about two and a half years. I'm not talking about just Christmas time for two and a half years. I'm talking about two and a half years straight. And the wall between our bedrooms growing up was very thin. And I just, it just penetrates my brain in a way that nothing else does. So I don't know, maybe I'll get over it with time. Uh, but I, I it, uh, that is it brings anytime i hear any of those songs it brings me back to my childhood and not in a not in the best way <laughs> and nathan is this is this all mariah or is it just like all i want for christmas is you like the christmas stuff or is like just are the, you trying okay well just the christmas stuff but i, I, I i'm also not like listening to 
Mariah Carey, the rest of her catalog on a, on a regular basis. But it's it's the trigger is the Christmas. The trigger is the are the Christmas socks. This last couple of years must have been quite difficult for you then. <laughs> it's all right. We'll we'll work through it. And that's all the time we have. We discussed the upcoming special election in New York's third district. We talked about some old names in some new races. And we talked about the state of the Republican presidential primary. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we also have a little bit of news on the inside elections front. Our colleague, friend, and co-host Aaron Covey is taking on a new role with our friends over at the Cook Political Report. Uh, so you'll be seeing some uh, some new faces uh, here uh, uh, with Jacob and I on the Inside Elections podcast. And you can still read Aaron's great work over at the Cook Report. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions and group packages that are tailored for association and corporate packs. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment. If you don't like today's episode, please email Flo from Progressive. We also wanted to thank our producers, Alan Tuzinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and associate producer Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.